The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Good afternoon everyone. This is Mary Woods and I'm your host today. And um, I am very pleased to introduce our guest, uh, Mr. Raymond Tomasi, who is the president and CEO of Gosnold on Cape Cod. Uh, Gosnold is the region's leading substance abuse and mental health organization. Ray has been with the company since 1972, and he was appointed CEO in 1991. During his tenure at Gosnold, um, Ray has overseen the development of innovative and progressive programs Um, He has taken the organization from a small single-floor detox unit to a regional authority on addiction, prevention, intervention, education, treatment, and recovery. Um, One thing I know about Ray is that he is very committed and dedicated to providing um, the best possible services for people with um, mental illness and addiction. And I can honestly say, and and I truly mean this, Ray is probably one of the better forward thinkers of our industry. Um, Ray was partnering with uh, primary care before anyone else even thought of it, Um, and he's been an innovator in our field, and um, I am so happy to have you as our guest today, Ray, to talk about redefining addiction, prevention, treatment, and management of um, people with addiction disorders. Um, so I, there are so many places we could start, and um, I guess I would like you to begin by just kind of giving us um, where you think we are as an industry today, and then maybe where you think we need to go. Well, it's actually a, a very fascinating uh, time to be in this in this space, and I mean the interest in our in, in our industry is uh, has brought on into the mixed. Uh, players who I, I don't think that even as recently as 10 years ago we, we would think would ever be involved in in addiction treatment or behavioral health care. <clears throat> but because of a few things, now probably the uh, certainly the, uh, the ACA, uh, one of them, uh, mental health and substance abuse parity legislation being another, and of course the other being the the opiate crisis that has really surged in the last couple of years. I mean, a crisis that's been 17 or 18 years in the making, but clearly in the last two years with this, with a tremendous increase in opiate overdoses, we've had much more attention, uh, much more interest, and uh, much more opportunity as, as uh, access to treatment uh, expectations increase. And uh, there's almost a universal cry that we need to do more and we need to do better. I think that's probably the intersection of a couple of uh, current phenomena. One is what I think will be in the next couple of years an explosion in capacity 
particularly for bed capacity in our industry. And then, and I think that's some of that is is warranted. I'm not sure that all of it is. Uh, the other the other piece, which I think we're spending a lot more time on, and which I hope becomes even more important than increasing capacity, is really elevating the standard of care and looking at the treatment of addiction in a much more longitudinal way than we historically have. And that's the place where we have been working very hard, particularly the last couple of years, uh, looking at opportunities and ways uh, to improve what we've, what we've done. And I, um, you know, we, we actually looked at, there are a couple of pieces of information, data pieces that we looked at as we started to define our future course. Uh, one being the, uh, some of the MIS data that comes out of the state of Massachusetts about admissions to inpatient facilities, which shows pretty clearly that there's a, a very high rate of multiple admissions to both acute and subacute services. And the other is actually some, some things, there's some things that we've done here to look at population subsets uh, to measure outcomes in some of our programs, some of our shorter-term programs, our, our uh, inpatient programs, and then and then in, implementing some approaches to uh, improve the longer-term management of, of, of patients that come out of treatment. Because what we found, we did a sample of about 75 or 100 people, and we found that all of the folks actually in the sample uh, had completed that particular episode of care. It was an acute episode of care. They all accepted referral to next steps, and they all had all, let's say in excess of 90%, had support of a family or significant loved one. Yet in the demographic group that we looked at, within two to three weeks, 18% had resumed use. Most people do very well while they're in treatment. The big challenge is, is what happens when they leave treatment, how well do they transition to the next level of care, and is that next level of care enough to support extended remission? And we didn't think that what we presently have in place and what most um, programs have in place is adequate. So we began looking at ways to improve that. So um, let's circle back and talk a little bit about outcomes. What are you measuring? Are you measuring days abstinent? Are you measuring um, work? Are you measuring rehospitalization? What are you looking in terms of outcomes? What we're looking at, uh, and, and we, we have had, we're look, the, the project that we've been very active in the last 18 months is what we would still call a pilot project. But what we're looking at are days in remission, so we take we take the information from patient experience uh, one year prior to beginning uh, our extended engagement program, and then we look at them going forward. So we're looking at days in remission. We're looking at uh, readmission rates to acute levels of care. We're looking at uh, engagement with medication-assisted treatments. Uh, we're looking at the uh, percentage of time, if you will, in sober supportive environments. We're looking at reduction in hospital ER admissions, uh, legal offenses, and we're looking at uh, average days per month in employment uh, previous year compared to sort of in-program year. 
You know, we've so had bad, we've had close. Being I'm sorry. Go ahead. So it's more than just being abstinent. It's more than just being. Abstinent. Oh yeah, yeah. No, no. Our 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 outcome uh, objectives really are can be reduced to three lines. One is increase periods of remission, um, limit or reduce periods of acuity, and three, improve function during periods of remission. And one of the one of the unexpected. Uh, results of the of the folks that we're looking at in this pilot has been that for those patients who have resumed use, or and I'll, I can explain more about what we do in this service. Uh, for those folks who have resumed use after a period of of some remission, the average length of their episode is uh, between resumption of use and return to stabilization care is less than seventy two hours. So. Because of the elements of this service that we've employed, we've been able to uh, really reduce any, almost eliminate extended runs while, uh, for for patients that relapse. That's phenomenal. Um, is there what are, What are you doing to to do increase the level of care? Are they given? Um, Inpatient treatment. What what do you do as the intervention that gets all of the, back on track? All of the patients yeah. that were that are that we're seeing in this pilot have there are six or seven elements to the to the service, the, the, and they're all we're starting them as they come out of an inpatient episode, generally, and an intermediate term rehab, like a three to five week stay. But we're beginning to look at it also to extend it to other levels of care also. But in this, at, at this point, the core or center, centerpiece of it is a very highly personalized recovery coaching and care management piece where we've got certified. We started with one. I think we, now we have nine. Sometime over the next six to nine months, we'll have close to 20 what we call recovery coaches. They're certified. We send them for training. Many of them are folks that have worked in our organization in some capacity as a, as a case manager, for instance. So they engage with the patients before they leave an inpatient service and then stay with them, not simply to help them make a, a successful transition to the next level of care, but we actually take them uh, we make sure they get to their med appointments if if they're uh, on medication. We're working with them to um, uh, return them to academic pursuits, uh, to help them uh, find employment, to ensure that they're in supportive environments. Uh, the the program really requires that their support system, or in most cases. Their families, because the target group for this pilot are 18 to 20 year old demographic. Most of them have a very invested families, people who care about them, who want to who want to be involved in their care. So the family also gets the coaching piece. Uh, so they have communication regularly with the coaches. The traditional psychosocial interventions. So they they may go to individual therapy. They may go to group. Uh, they may go to a um, recovery support group in the community. It's not mandatory, but it's usually part of most folks' treatment. There's a technology-assisted piece with it. Uh, we use a, a smartphone application 
to remain in contact with patients. Uh, there are some features of the technology that, that are GPS-enabled so that we can load high-risk locations into the smartphone. Uh, there's a little panic button they can hit, which connects them instantly to a counselor or a coach if they're uh, feeling like they're in a high-risk situation. And there's also a recovery socialization component to the service. So that we've, we, we found that simply getting folks to their primary care doc or to their counseling appointment or their 12-step group or their med appointment really didn't fill in a, a large part of the, the life of a person. And so about a year in, we added a, a recovery socialization. So we help folks connect to... Uh, healthy activities, uh, clean and sober fun, if you will. We've had uh, uh, we've had folks on ski trips, deep sea fishing things, all kinds of. They're in running groups, uh, fitness programs. It's really about finding a life in recovery that provides a level of satisfaction that sort of really supersedes what the drug-using life provided. It's been good. It's very labor-intensive. I mean, my initial estimate was that we'd have one coach for every 20 individuals. It's more like 1 to 12 because of the level of involvement that we have. But it takes that kind of a thing to really move folks from an addiction-driven life to a recovery-driven life. And we'll be right back after this commercial. listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Tune in every Tuesday for C. diff, spores, and more with hosts Nancy Kerala and Dr. Chandra Bali Ghosh. Our program is to provide information about C. diff, healthcare-associated infections, and more. Nancy is a C. diff survivor, healthcare professional, and the founder and executive director of the C. diff Foundation. And Dr. Ghosh is the chairperson of research and development for the C. diff Foundation. Together with their guests, we'll explore infection prevention, treatments, environmental safety, and more. Listen every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Health & Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time.
Welcome back to One Hour of Time. This is Mary Woods, and I'm your host today. Um, our topic is redefining addiction prevention and treatment and management, and we're talking with Ray Tomasi, who is the president and CEO of Gosnell on Cape Cod. For those of you who may not know, Cape Cod is in Massachusetts. And um, before going to break, um, Ray was describing their um, continuum of services that um, really what you were describing was a recovery-oriented system of care. And, um, you know, I think that there's a, there's a lot of belief that we need more treatment beds in our industry because there are people waiting for treatment. And while I think we may need some more beds, um, Ray and I were talking during the break that this, you know, treatment occurs on a continuum. And being able to provide the types of supports that Ray described is how people learn to live in recovery. So when someone um, relapses, it doesn't necessarily mean they have to go into residential treatment. It may mean they just need more recovery skills in the community so that we end up doing this revolving door where people are getting stable, but they're not developing the skills. And I, I know you have some thoughts about that uh, revolving door as well, right? You'd like to well, share I, mean, I, I think as we, as we embark on this period where there will be bed capacity expansion, we, we, there are two sort of conflicting pieces here. Now, when I, so when I looked at the, the, some of the data sets for this statewide, out of, there were about 40,000 admissions, for instance, to a detox uh, that feeds information to the state system yearly. Uh, 55% of those admissions, actually, let me start with a bigger number, 87 to 88% of those admissions are folks who have been in those treatment settings multiple times, 55% five or more times. So I did a, a list of a calculation that if we were able to reduce that 55% of patients who have been there five or more times to 40%, 55 to 40%, we would free up something like 4,500 or 5,000 slots, bed slots for other people to be admitted. If you think about that for a second, 22,000 of the 40,000 admissions to detoxes in the state of Massachusetts are for patients that have been there multiple times, five or more times. Uh, And those numbers are roughly... They're similar for other levels of inpatient care. So simply looking at that data, we can say pretty safely that uh, simply stabilizing a person in a one-week or three-week, or I can tell you a three-month program, at some point the individual has to come out of a, of a bed-driven piece uh, piece, and it really is that place I think that we have really fallen short. That is uh, the providing the level of support or preparing folks to return to independent living or family living or whatever, and have enough of a of a, a centerpiece for for recovery that that allow them to sustain. So that in itself, because we haven't really paid attention to the longitudinal perspective that we need to take about taking care of this chronic condition. The other factor that plays in is that individuals in the community equate treatment, going for addiction treatment, as going into an inpatient place. So I've heard folks talk about their 
and they're very passionate. And, 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 and let me just say that there is certainly room for capacity expansion on the bedside. Folks who have said, well, my brother was, was in, has been in treatment, but you, but you can't just stay for, you know, it's hard to get into a detox. It's hard to get into rehab. There aren't any beds. There aren't any beds. And then the next breath, he'll say, like, my brother was in detox 12 times. He's been in three rehabs. The family has spent $200,000 uh, in treatments, and he hasn't, and he hasn't been able to sustain his recovery. So that in itself says that we, we really need to pay attention to this condition over the longer term. How do we help patients manage their illness over the long term? And I don't think that we have invested adequately in those kinds of um, those kinds of components. And, and because if you look at the at the at the curve, if you will, if you put it on a curve, most of the services, most of the dollars get spent on bed driven care. Very little on post uh, inpatient um, management and almost nothing on intervention, early identification, and early intervention on the prevention side. Well, you know, um, I'd like to just talk a little bit more about the, um, you know, the longitudinal view of this illness is that with any chronic illness, you know, there are longitudinal supports, whether it's diabetes or cancer or whatnot, and I'm not sure why our industry has such a hard time grasping that, you know, um, this, this, these are brain diseases. And when people go back into their environment, they're going to get triggered. That's just part of what you do when you have a brain disease like this. But we don't take that into, into consideration when we send somebody back home. How are you going to override those impulses? What kind of community supports are available, whether it's um, biofeedback or massage or you know, working out in the gym three times a week, seeing that as being part of somebody's ability to kind of retrain their brain. And um, do you have any thoughts just about treatment in general? Um, well, I mean, part of this is it, part of this is comes out of the way our whole industry was born. It was born with the creation of detoxification units back when public intoxication was decriminalized in the early 70s. And everything that has come after that has been built upon that acute system of care. So what we have is essentially an acute paradigm that has grown over time. So we learned very quickly in the beginning that five or six or seven days in a detox wasn't adequate. And so we then created programs of three to four weeks in length. So we had the 28-day rehab model. And we provide these services at Gosnell. Uh, then we found out that, well, some people need to be maybe two or three months. And so we keep building on the bed-driven part of the care. And and so the 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 whole perception of treatment that has been reinforced with our society is that you go away to rehab to get fixed. What happens then when the person doesn't get fixed is that because of the stigma associated with addiction, it either becomes the patient's fault, the patient didn't want to get better, or it it uh, it accrues to the treatment industry, if you will, that treatment doesn't work, and and if and if that is repeated enough, 
essentially you have underinvestment in, in treatment because the perception of the treatment doesn't work. So you have a lot of factors playing into this. The stigma of addiction, the shame and guilt associated with it, the silence, the, the sort of in the dark place that addiction was, and to some degree, the the, the kind of keep it a secret, keep it anonymous thing, I think that's starting to change in some circles. So there are multiple factors that have brought us to this place. It's, the thing that disturbs me uh, a little bit is that what we're looking to do now is really build upon that same paradigm by increasing beds. And I think we need to increase beds in the short term. But short-term solutions are not going to provide the long-term outcomes that we're looking for as we try to manage this illness. Very much the same, not exactly, but very much the same as you just described with some of the other chronic conditions that we take care of. It's a long climb out of where we are. But I think what we're trying to do here is elevate the standards of care help people begin to think about this in a more constructive thing. So we want to really keep people from coming back to a to an inpatient program. And in the best of all worlds, I'd like to see people never even having to go there because we were working much more closely with the medical community and screening and identifying and intervening earlier. And so we're doing some work in that space also. You know, as, as you were talking, I was thinking about... Um, <clears throat> Is our industry ready for this? I mean, never mind the national health care, but just um, the behavioral health industry. Are we, or is this industry ready for this shift? I mean, do, do you think people believe this is where we need to go? I think that someone has to begin to have a, the conversation because otherwise what we're going to do is we're going to discredit ourselves by doing more of the same with more of the same outcomes. And I think that some of the data that we see as we be, as we come closer to to tr- more traditional medical fields, that folks are beginning to see that the impact of behavioral health conditions on costs of of healthcare are significant. You know, I mean, if a person has a medical condition plus uh, de- substance dependence, they're costing two and a half times more than the, the the person who doesn't have those two disorders. If you fold in the mental health disorder, now you have three, it's seven and a half times higher cost to take care of those individuals. And as we start to move toward alternative payment models in the insurance and reimbursement side, where there will be some risk that providers will assume in caring for patients and taking responsibility for them, either by themselves or as part of a larger system, I think it's inevitable that you're going to have to see uh, a shift to a a better sort of chronic disease management model. I mean, we're we're involved in a a couple of uh, sort of test arrangements with uh, payers now uh, where we're being assessed uh, for readmission rates, so that every month we have a we have a call, and we look at our thirty day and ninety day readmission rates, and we have targets that we have to hit. It, when that responsibility begins to get assumed by the provider, um, with with reasonable and manageable risk associated with it, I think you begin looking at your patient population differently, so that your interest is not just what happens in the one month that they're with you. Uh, but what happens while they're with you for the next two to three to four to five years? And I think that changes the way providers start to look at their at their work. At least that's that's what we're 
banking on because we think it's the better it's the better way to go. And I would totally agree with that. And um, our outcome data certainly supports that. We've been tracking people. We have two years worth of data that Dartmouth has done for us. And um, you know, we have people in residential, and then they go into an assertive community treatment team, which is very similar to what you just described. Yeah. And you know, people sustain. Um, they sustain their success over the course of two years. Now, maybe education's gone up and down a little bit, or maybe they haven't gotten the job of, of their dreams, but in terms of stable, independent, successful living and, you know, not getting rehospitalized and um, having a meaningful um, role in, in their life, it, all these things have improved and continue to improve, but that's not done without, in isolation, that's done with a lot of community-based support. And to me, that just makes sense. I mean, it makes, you know, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm really hoping... Well, it makes sense. Right. It, it makes and dollar sense and it makes it. good care sense. But it may not, in the, in the short term, it's going to cost to do it. And right now, the incentives for capital fl- capital to flow into our into our industry, the incentive is to is to expand bed capacity, and and generate re- revenues through through the through bed care. And and again, I, I think that bed care is necessary for many people. Is it the answer to the long term for the long term? Absolutely not. And I, and I think to the degree that we can begin to 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 uh, to work more closely is we're we're in several primary care practices we're in an OBGY two OBGYN practices we're we're starting in a pediatric group uh, sometime in the next month we're in a community health center where our clinicians are embedded in those practices and the purpose there is to begin to do better screening and better interventions on patients that score a three or a four on a screen as opposed to an eight or a nine I think if we continue to wait for patients to become eights or nines before we say, oh, we have to do something, then we're going to be forever building the emergency rooms and the rehabs, and we're going to be faced with the same kind of outcomes that we've seen over the last 25 or 30 years. I would agree with that. Or we'll just continue to build more prisons, and we'll be right back after this commercial. listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Ayurveda and yoga are ancient sciences to achieve complete health of body, mind, and spirit. But there are many misconceptions about them. By making the science of life a way of life, managing health and preventing disease becomes second nature. Tune in to According to Ayurveda and Yoga 
with host Anne Holiday. Anne is an Ayurvedic professional and world traveler. She will show you how to apply the principles of holistic medicine to modern living. Join the conversation with her and well-known guests in the field of Ayurveda and yoga. Tune in every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health and Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods, and we are talking with Ray Tomasi, who is the president and CEO of Gosnold on Cape Cod in Massachusetts. And um, I truly meant it earlier when I said Ray is one of our better thinkers in our industry, and he's always been about 10 steps ahead of everyone else. And, you know, Ray, um, when you were talking about embedding clinicians in a pediatric practice and being an OBGYN, that's what most people wish they could do. But you've been doing this for a while. You've been doing it with primary care for a long time. So um, could you talk a little bit more about the prevention intervention side of, of what you're doing? Well, yeah, sure. Happy to. It's something that is consistent with the way we think about As we've been spending most of this day, we've talked about the extended engagement, so the preventing readmission. But certainly there's another side of that, and that is not just preventing readmission, but preventing admission. And so that we're really looking to find ways that we can identify folks at an earlier place. We know some of the some of the things that put people at higher risk, we don't do very much about them, and I'm not sure that we know a lot about what to do even when we do want to do something about them, but it's an area that needs a lot more emphasis. And so we began some time ago uh, connecting up with medical practices. So we have clinicians, they're, they're in various roles depending on the practice, and a lot of it is still exper- a little experimental for we're trying to get experience doing this. The financial sustainability of it is a challenge because reimbursement doesn't lend itself easily to this sort of thing. But what we found is that when we're working side-by-side with physicians and other medical providers, mid-range providers, in their setting, uh, we're not doing therapy per se. We're actually as a member of the medical team, uh, so we're interacting in in ways of uh, brief intervention, education, helping people manage their illness, identify, doing screenings, and then trying to help, in some cases, um, coach people into... um, better use of, or I say better, more moderate use of alcohol or limiting their intake. It's not always about simply saying everyone has to abstain forever because we're seeing folks whose health conditions are being compromised a little bit because of their drinking uh, habits, but they may not need to 
totally abstain. So it would be good if we were able to help those folks and that they never reached a place where they needed specialized treatment in an addiction center. Uh, in some cases, we're finding that abstinence is the way to go and that those folks need specialized care. In the OBGYN practices, we're working with patients uh, uh, during their pregnancy to see that they're abstaining from substances. Those who have great difficulty in doing that, who may be a little more advanced, we're providing specialized care for them. We're looking to introduce more universal screening to all the patients in those practices. What we find in most medical practices when we go in and we talk about, about what we can do to help them is they'll Typically, they'll say, well, there are about 25 patients I have that really need what you provide. And then we say, well, how many patients do you have in your practice, doctor? And they'll say, well, I have 6,000. <laughs> well, we, we know immediately that the 25 certainly represent the far extreme piece of this uh, on the scale, which, which most of us you know, relate to these, those people, if you will. But we know that there'll be 20 to 25% of the 6,000 who will score a little bit above the line uh, if we do universal screening. Right now, no one's doing anything about those folks. Uh, that's where we want to really try to make an impact. And I think that's an, an area that, for the most part, it, it, there's more attention being paid to it, but it's, it's a little complex, uh, both from the money side and from the delivery side. It changes the way the clinician has to function in that practice. It's no longer about 45-minute sessions. It's not about owning the patient. It's about uh, collaborating and coordinating with other folks in the medical practice. And it's about seeing patients who may be coming to see you because they're depressed because they just had a new diagnosis of a cardiac condition and that that then becomes the behavioral intervention uh, with a cardiac patient. Uh, so it's not about uh, waiting for people to be diagnosed as dependent or diagnosed with a psychiatric disorder. It's working with all of the behaviorally related conditions that impact a person's health. It really opens up a wide spectrum of activity that I don't think we've done very much about in the past. What do you use for a screening tool in those settings? Well, in the pediatric practice, it's a I think it's a PHC. It's the the depression screen, the GAD seven uh, modified audit on the substance abuse uh, piece, and then on the OBGYNs, um, we actually uh, there's a colleague of mine out in the West Coast who's developed uh, a really great program called the Early Start program, and so we're using some of the pieces of her model in the OBGYN practice. Uh, we're going into another OBGYN practice, I think, in the next two weeks. So it's, it's also, it also involves educating the medical staff. They're not really that familiar with this sort of thing. But let me tell you, once we're in and we kind of get in the groove, they love our people because we're helping them with things that heretofore they really haven't done very much about. And as you know, most of the psychotropic medication that's prescribed in this country is prescribed by primary care docs, not by psychiatrists. So um, it's, it's a great partnership that we're, we're, we're really looking to expand it. Now, what about the traditional interventions? When we think of interventions, we think about the Johnson model or we think about that show on television. Um, what about more of the addiction interventions? 
Yeah, we have uh, probably seven, eight, maybe ten folks that are certified in intervention uh, approaches. We use the we use a little bit of the old Johnson model. We also use the Landau Arise intervention model. Um, so we're 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 able to do those. Uh, those interventions, that the more traditional ones that you know that you do with families and or sort of orchestrating those, we do a good number of those. But a lot of the interventions that we can do in the medical practices are with the physician and the mid-range providers. Uh, there's a credibility that you get as a behavioral health provider when you're embedded in a medical practice that I don't think you have as a specialty provider, partly because of stigma and the way people view mental health and addiction providers. So if, uh, you, you know, when, if a physician gives you a card and says, well, here, here, Mary, I think it would be helpful if you went to see this therapist at Gosnell, uh, in probably 20% of the cases, that patient is going to make it to that uh, provider. Uh, if you have the provider in the medical practice with the rest of the medical staff, uh, number one, mo- many of the re- remedial interventions you can do, you can do in the medical practice. When the person does need specialty care, um, the chances of them making that connection when the, ref- when, the, when the referral has been initiated by a clinician in the practice, is, we've seen it as high as 80, 80%. They get there because there's a link between the specialty provider and the primary care doc that is there to sort of reinforce the, the need for the service. It's, uh, I, I don't think it's terribly brilliant, it's just that reimbursement has never been there for these kinds of services, and it still isn't. Reimbursement lies uh, right now, as we said at the outset, in with the expanded bed capacity, and I think that's that's where the investment is. Uh, Mary, I've done this for 40 years. Uh, I can tell you that about a year ago I was sitting on Madison Avenue in a private equity firm briefing them on behavioral health uh, because why? They suddenly had become very sort of interested in this as, as to try to help people. And not that they aren't, but it's, it's a very fertile area for investment and equity, uh, equity investment and returns on, on, uh, on that investment. And so that's where a lot of interest lies right now. And I realized even that day that I said to them, I said, you know, you guys are in the investment business. And that's cool. I'm in the healthcare business. In a lot of ways, it's it's a lot harder. But I think there's the difference, and that's what we're seeing right now with all of the sort of new interest in our field. And it, it brings with it the risk that the pursuit of the profit and the return on the investment hopefully is not going to lead to to abuses. Inevitably, you know, you will have some on the edges. I think. Yeah, um, you know, that's kind of a slippery slope from my point of view because this is just my opinion, but I don't think our industry has had the best track record when it comes to providing, um, you know, the best standard of care when reimbursement is hinged on different things. I can remember in the early 80s working in a state-funded treatment program in New Hampshire that was maybe $1,500 for... for uh, 30 days of care, but there was a private nonprofit supposedly that opened up in this state that had a golf course and jacuzzis and um, 
you know, Nautilus machines, and it was at that time like, uh, you know, $20,000, which was a lot of money. I mean, it's still a lot of money, but, you know, and we used to say, well, our program, the treatment is essentially the same. Why does it cost them so much more? You know, and I, and I think that there's been a lot of entrepreneurial or whatever um, people that have come into this not with good intentions in their heart, but as a way to just make money. And, and so I... I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of skeptical, but my Irish background, well, I guess. But. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, those are niche players. I think there, there's always a market for for uh, for that for for folks who want uh, settings that have those kinds of amenities, and maybe you know, the, maybe someone who's someone who can afford to pay thirty or forty uh, or fifty thousand dollars for a month of care and feels comfortable about. That then that's fine, but that's that's a very small that's a very small segment of the population in need, and I think that I think the I think the thing that is hurtful is if the people begin to think that if I spend forty thousand dollars to go away for three or four or five weeks, that there's a greater chance that I'm going to get better than if I go somewhere that costs less. I think people need to really examine what are the services being provided, who's providing them, and almost more importantly, what happens at the end of that stay? What happens if it's a three or four week stay? What happens at the end of that? How how does that uh, organization help sustain my recovery? Or is it a matter of, okay, you had a month, good luck, here's a list of places you can go, uh, and we hope we never see you again. Uh, you know, good luck to you. I, I, I think that we need to expect more from our field if we're really going to be uh, viewed as legitimate providers of a chronic condition that people need to manage over the course of their lifetime. And we'll be right back after this commercial. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Good childhood mental health is critically important. Early patterns of emotions and thinking shape children's behavior from preschool into the teen years and beyond. But understanding young kids can be a challenge. Tune in to Child Psych Central. Discover the kid brain with Dr. Beth Onafrak. Each week, we will reveal how brain function and child development drive young children's daily behavior. Listen every Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. It's one of the best things that you can do as a parent. Helping you make informed decisions for your life. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. 
You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods, and our guest is Ray Tomasi, who is President and CEO of Gosnell on Cape Cod in Massachusetts. And, um, Ray, quickly before we get talking, and I forget, how do people get in touch with you at Gosnell, or if they want treatment, what's the best way to get a hold of you? Well, it's an 800 number, uh, 800-444-1554. Uh, I hope soon, soon, I don't know how soon, but I hope soon we're going to be able to do uh, appointments and scheduling right off of the website. I keep clamoring for it. but uh, So that will get you into our centralized uh, intake uh, system. And we get about 3,000, 3,500 calls a month, so it's a very busy. And not all for uh, beds, but, but sometimes for information for all sorts of things. So we try to respond as quickly as we can. Um, I guess in this last segment, I'd like to um, hear your thoughts on one of the, well, two debates that we have in our profession. One is on um, medically assisted treatment, and the other debate is on whether you're an abstinence-based program or you do harm reduction. And what are your thoughts on those? Topic. Well, we're in all those spaces, uh, and that's kind of how I see the whole thing. I, we, we, uh, we, uh, we are medication assisted. I guess that's the term that's being used. We're not a methadone yeah. provider, so we don't. We're not a licensed methadone provider, so we don't use methadone. Uh, we are very heavily involved with uh, injectable naltrexone. We may have probably 400 or so patients on it now. We've had over a thousand patients on it. We well, we've migrated a little bit away from Suboxone. We have some legacy patients that are still maintained on Suboxone for management. Uh, but I kind of I like the once a month injectable and uh, in concert with other psychosocial interventions. We've seen some some good outcomes. I don't think any of these medications are perfect. But but we're we're actually we've taken a position that. We really need to use all of the tools that are available. In the best of all worlds, I'd, I'd love everyone to have spontaneous remission and never have to do anything ever again, but that's not the case. And so I think right now there are about 30 or 40 medications in the pipeline, most of them around alcohol, or uh, let's say about a third of them around alcohol, not a lot about some of the other drug dependencies. And I think we'll see an explosion of that in the next 10 years. On the harm reduction abstinence-based thing, I think you know we were cre- we're created and we sort of identify ourselves as an abstinence-based program, and that what that means to us is that we believe that in the long run the best uh, option for folks is that they be abstinent from any of the mind-altering drugs in order to to live the most fulfilling, enriching life in recovery. Having said that, uh, even though I don't consider myself uh, a, a member of the harm reductionist philosophy, 
we've been doing harm reduction since the day we opened in 1972. Uh, and I think every treatment center does harm reduction. Uh, by that, simply, we admit patients, they do better, they, they have regressions, we bring them back, and we find that, okay, you did better in the last six months than you did the previous six months, so you are actually on a course of... Uh, extending those periods of remissions. And every time we extend a period of remission, we reduce the potential harm that's caused by sustained use <clears throat> so that we're all harm reductionists. I think, the, I think the ideological positions that both sides take are kind of absurd um, because we all want the same thing for our patients. Well, but why do you think it's there? I mean, I agree with you. I think it's totally absurd, but it's, it's a very real and hot discussion, but but why why do we have it in this industry? I think that we we essentially we have some um, positions in the industry that are uh, just overly ideological and and that in some ways uh, serve to uh, rationalize uh, approaches and uh, interests of, of particular folks. I, I, to me, it's it's just crazy. If we knew that one or the other of these sort of uh, fenced-in positions really all, uh, made significant difference, then I think you know maybe it's fine to take one or the other. But we, we know that that uh, there's an element in both of these uh, places that we need in our industry. Now, having said that, I'm not a guy who was out supporting, uh, like, safe injection sites. I would not be in favor of that. I would say, okay, bring all of the heroin, uh, injectable heroin users and give them a place where they can inject safely so that when they want uh, to have treatment, we'll know where they are. Uh, I'm not, I understand some of the rationale for that. Well, I don't think there's a place for that or much interest in this country for that. But I would not be a, a harm reductionist on, on that point, if you will. Uh, clean needles, I, I don't really see the deal with that. Uh, we don't do that. Somebody else does, and that's fine. It's reduced uh, HIV infection rates, so it's hard to say that's a bad thing to do. Uh, on the other hand, we would not be giving out clean needles in our treatment center. <laughs> we're not, we're not okay. there. So uh, some of what it is, is we've got to get past some of that. What about Narcan? Well, Narcan is, is the CPR of, a, of, uh, of the overdose world. I mean, you know, Narcan in and of itself uh, has a very functional and, and, and limited purpose. That's to save lives. It's hard to argue with that, and I wouldn't. We, uh, we subscribe to it, uh, and it has made a difference in Massachusetts and many other states. In and of itself, it's totally inadequate. You've got to do something. If all you do is Narcan people, then all you'll ever do is Narcan people. And so it has a place, uh, uh, I, I call it like CPR. You do CPR, you're still going to get the person to the hospital and treat them. Not get to them, them to the hospital and say, okay, you're fine, see you later in 10 minutes. I think that's, a, that's one of the challenges that we have to overcome with Narcan. Right, yeah. You know, um, they're still debating that. I mean, in New Hampshire, there's limited use of it um, only for first responders, and that just got passed. So, 
Well, there's a sort of, and I've talked to law enforcement. We actually have introduced a, a service, that, again, it responds to a need. So we found out that many of the police departments uh, down here uh, go out a day or two or three after an overdose event, visit the household, and try to, you know, offer us, uh, some support to, to the family and to the overdose victim. And when we heard that, we decided that we would take some of our recovery coaches, our family outreach people, and seek to partner with the police and go with them to the homes because we felt that we had a better way of engaging with folks. So we started doing that about a month ago. We're, we're doing it with two police departments now. We hopefully we can do it with every police department on the Cape. Uh, and we've actually gotten four or five of these young folks into treatment. Uh, we've uh, gotten several of these families uh, to attend our family support groups. So that's really an intervention that, you know, if if Narcan brings someone back and then we go the next day or two later and visit the household and are able to get the individual into treatment or at least begin the process and then talk to the family about how we can help them manage this sort of crisis, that's a... Uh, we see that as a real sort of advancement and opportunity to, to do good in the community. So, um, Ray, I know you're speaking at a few events. Do you just want to share with our audience in case they're in the area where, you, where you're going to be? Uh, I'm going to be in uh, California at the West Coast Symposium in May. I think that's late May. Uh, sort of expounding on this model uh, a little bit in a little bit more detail, and again in St. Louis at the NCAD conference, talking about this sort of new paradigm that we're. It's 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 really a it's really a condensed uh, series of presentations that takes a lot of what has been done individually, as you referenced earlier, ACT and recovery-oriented systems of care, putting it together in a package and helping people look at this illness differently and really getting them hopefully to think about the services that they deliver and the, and their, their place in their various communities and how they become more effective in helping manage this over the long term. So once in St. Louis, I think that's in early August, and then uh, at the West Coast Symposium in late May, and I believe okay, probably well, at the Cape Cod mm-hmm. Symposium in September. Thank you so much for spending this hour with us. It's just flown by. And thank you again for all your thought leadership. Great to talk with you, Mary. Appreciate the opportunity. You have a great week, everyone. We appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week.